from John 13, verses 1 through 17. John 13, verses 1 through 17, page 900 in the Pew Bibles. John 13, 1 through 17. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking up a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord... Do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you that it will accomplish your purpose. We thank you that it doesn't go out and return void. But that by the power of your spirit, you will change us by it even tonight. We pray that that would indeed happen now. We pray this for Christ's glory. Amen. Well, there are obviously a lot of things in our world that run contrary or even directly opposed to things that Jesus taught and even things that Jesus did. And so that's really not that surprising. But there are some things, though, that Jesus said and did that may run contrary to even our own intuition. Things that we as believers kind of feel a little uncomfortable about. And I would say that certainly one of, if not the greatest example of this, is the radical humility that marked Jesus' life, what we see in this passage here. To see how contrary this is to our culture, you need to watch one episode of Oprah. And you'll see that this is absolutely true. The perceived problem 
for probably 90% of her guests, and this runs rampant, 90% of her guests is something having to do with low self-esteem. The issue is all about the self. I have been wronged. I need to be worried about my own needs and desires. And the assumption is that our real problem is that we don't think highly enough or often enough about ourselves. So you can see that obviously humility, or even really a consideration of others at all, is not something that's even a part of this way of thinking. Humble, self-denying, loving service is hardly valued on a day-to-day basis. And now, of course, we praise and recognize the police officer who will risk his life to save another, and even the soldier who goes to put himself in a place of potential harm to protect his fellow soldiers and even us. But these are kind of the large-scale, glorious sort of examples uh, that make the headlines. These aren't things that we see every day. What about the mother who gives up her high-paying job in order to stay home with her family to serve them, and yet is still even looked down upon by some in our culture for so doing? Or maybe the family that holds off on the newer, nicer home in order to allow an aging parent to move in with them. Generally speaking, these sorts of genuine examples of self-denial and humility aren't valued at all in our culture. But what we see Jesus doing in this passage, though, is exactly that. One of the core features of his very life was his love expressed through self-denying service. And the washing of the disciples' feet in this passage is a great example of that sacrificial love. But to all who were present at this meal, what Jesus does is shocking and probably a little bit awkward even. What I want to do is just walk through this passage, taking a closer look at what exactly Jesus does in washing the disciples' feet. And then at his own explanation of his washing the disciples' feet. And then finally, how that relates to our own lives. Notice first how John sets up this passage in verse 1. He writes, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, and listen closely here to this last part, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So this is a really important preface to what Jesus is about to do. He's about to spend his final evening with the disciples here in the upper room. And what he's going to spend the next five chapters doing is setting forth one major theme. And that's the love of Christ. So John is already introducing that here. And notice that last phrase in particular. He loved them to the end. You could say that Jesus loved them completely and He loved them wholly, both to the end of His life prior to His death and also to the utmost. There's no greater love than that He laid down His life for them. So in both senses, He loved them to the end. And then Jesus moves in uh, to begin actually washing His disciples' feet. Look at verse 4 there. He laid aside His outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around His waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Well, first we should probably ask, what's the significance of washing feet here? What's Jesus doing here? What's going on? This isn't something, obviously, that we're very accustomed to. Uh, You go to a friend's house to share a meal. You're probably not going to arrive and have someone waiting there to wash your feet. But... The washing of feet in first century Palestine, though, was a very common practice. And the reasons for it really are pretty practical. 
They're wearing sandals. It's dusty everywhere. Their feet would gather dirt as they went. So it was customary that as you arrived at someone's house, someone would wash your feet. But it was usually performed by the slave of the household. It was very rarely done by peers, and it was never done by a superior. Carson says this about it. Some Jews insisted that Jewish slaves should not be required to wash their feet. This is something so low that only Gentile slaves should be required to do it. So for Jesus to perform such a duty is absolutely absurd in the minds of the disciples. For those of you in the corporate world, this is your CEO coming into your office in the middle of your day unannounced, begins dusting your shelves, maybe dusting your pictures, can I get you a cup of coffee, maybe even shining your shoes. Now, that's probably not expected for most of you. And maybe you students, you could think of your own principal or maybe the chancellor of your university coming and offering to carry your books for you from class to class for a whole week. All these things would probably be a little bit awkward, things you wouldn't expect. Look again to verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Well, here's where things start getting awkward for Peter. He sees Jesus stand up, lay aside his outer garments, wrap a towel around his waist, and he begins pouring water into a basin. And you can just imagine what he's thinking here. There's no way Jesus is about to do what I think he's going to do. And of course he is. Now this is Peter who's witnessed Jesus many miracles, even Lazarus being raised from the dead. He's seen Jesus teach in the synagogues as one who has authority. And this is the same Peter who had even confessed Jesus as the Christ. So he has seen who Jesus is. He knows who Jesus is. But by his reaction here, he obviously doesn't understand what's going on. Jesus then drops to his knees, clothed in slaves' attire, and begins washing his disciples' feet. I want you to feel the weight of that, to really think about what that would be like. Now, don't dismiss this as something that maybe Jesus just did in his humanity. We can't, it's not as though we can separate his two natures. This is the God-man. So it would be right to say that this is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, down on his knees before his disciples, serving them as a slave. Feel the weight of that. When it's put that way, we, probably right along with Peter, begin to feel a little bit uncomfortable too. And it's tempting to think that when we start talking about Jesus this way, that we're in some way compromising His glory. Or that at least we'd have to say that He's veiling His glory in some way. That this doesn't have anything to do with His glory at least. But as Darwin pointed out on Sunday, this is not the case. It's in His humility that His glory... And even the glory of the Father is revealed. Notice how their conversation then continues. Jesus says, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And then Peter responds by saying no in the strongest way possible. You shall never wash my feet. Jesus says, Then if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And commentators differ as to how those next three verses fit together. But one thing's pretty obvious. Jesus isn't just talking about washing feet here. That's not his primary point that he's making. What he's doing here, he's revealing 
the more of what his impending death will be the following evening, when he will do more than wash feet, he will cleanse his disciples even of their sins. And even more significantly, he says, unless I wash you. So in his response, Jesus is stating that he's the only way to be cleansed of our sins. So his crucifixion here is clearly in view throughout this whole narrative. And remember verses 1 and 3. John says twice that Jesus knew that his time had come to depart to be with the Father. And he was going willingly. I'm washing your feet now, but this only anticipates the length to which I will go tomorrow night because of my love for you. So Jesus is revealing his humility now and washing feet, but this is nothing This is nothing compared to the humiliation that He will endure on the cross. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And then Jesus concludes this conversation with a reference to Judas, His betrayer. Again, one whose feet He had just washed. And after finishing washing their feet, He rises and He begins to explain the significance of what He's done. We know he's already alluded to our need of greater washing, but he goes on to explain just what this washing of the disciples' feet means for their relationships with each other. Look down to verse 12, and we'll read through what Jesus says. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. This type of humility is what should characterize all of our relationships. It should characterize our relationships in the church, should characterize our relationships in the workplace, should characterize our relationships in the home, and it should characterize our relationships at school. This is all-encompassing. Jesus here gives us a model for living, and that model for living is self-giving sacrifice. And he gives an explicit commandment here to serve one another. Now, is he literally saying that we're to wash one another's feet? No, that's not the point here. But considering the low stature of this act, we should be prepared to go to great lengths to serve others. In light of verse 16, Morris writes this concerning the disciples, no act of service should be beneath them. And really, the same thing should be said of us. But how often do we really think that way? This is where it gets a little tough. Aren't there things that we believe we are really above doing? Some things that we don't have to stoop to or continually put up with. For instance, haven't I given enough time to this person? Haven't I given enough of my time listening and helping him through the same repeated problem? When will he just once ask me how I'm doing, show some kind of interest in my life, and return this sort of love that I'm showing him? We all think that way at some time or another, whether it's in the home whether it's at work or maybe even at church. If Jesus, the Master, stoops to such levels of self-denial and sacrifice, then we, His servants, should be prepared to do the exact same. 
If Jesus, our own master, does it, then really we should say we should do it all the more. But don't forget what Jesus is doing here. In his humility, his glory is revealed. And this has real implications for how we ourselves should think about going about serving people. When are, what are we doing when we as servants of Christ emulate him in our service of one another? Well, we're participating in something glorious. In self-denying service, we come to know Christ more. And as we come to know Christ more, we come to know what real life is. We were created to know God, and in knowing Him, we're to reflect His image. That's really our purpose. That's the meaning of life right there. So pouring yourself out for others is really at the very purpose and meaning of our own lives. It really changes the way you think about it if you view it from that angle. Listen to these promises that Jesus makes in Matthew's Gospel. He says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And Paul in Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Self-sacrificing, humble service is a glorious thing. And when we talk about humble service, what are we really talking about? Well, we're talking about love. We're talking about concrete expressions of genuine love to someone. That's really what Jesus says here. Whether we selflessly serve those around us is really an issue of whether or not we love them. And Jesus calls us later in this very chapter, as Darwin read earlier, in verse 34, to love as he loves. And this is what he calls the new commandment. So really, humility is an issue of love. Real love and real life is that which is wrapped up in concern and service for other people. And finally, where do we find the strength and ability to love like this? Because honestly, this is daunting. This is one of those passages that if you really take seriously, there are going to need to be some tremendous changes in our own lives. We don't want to do this most of the time. This is not the way that we think naturally. Naturally, we're going to think about ourselves and what it is that we need. So this would require something where we're changing even our most fundamental priorities, even our most fundamental structure of our lives, that we would begin counting others more significant than ourselves and thinking of them first. Well, as we said earlier, Jesus did not give just a command here. Even in his example, he's pointing to that which is the source for all of life and all that he calls us to do. And that source is his life. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He predicts his betrayal, gives the new commandment, and then spends four chapters comforting and teaching his disciples, all prior to his going to the cross to die on behalf of his people. Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried for sinners like you and me. And on Sunday, we'll celebrate his resurrection. On Sunday, we'll celebrate the fact that the grave could not hold him. We'll celebrate the fact that he conquered death. It is that resurrected Christ that we are now united to by faith. It's the very life of the one who Isaiah calls the suffering servant 
that we now have in us by virtue of our union with him. Do you see how huge that is? That relationship, our union with him, is where our strength to lovingly serve each other comes from. This isn't something you produce in yourself. This is something that comes from our union with Christ. And it's here at the table that we celebrate that union with him. It's here that in eating his body and drinking his blood that we are nourished spiritually. So as you come to the table tonight, come expecting to be nourished by the Christ that has died so that you wouldn't have to. Come to him that you might no longer live for yourself, but live for others. And in so doing, love each other as he has loved us. In humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are humbled by your example of humility. Uh, we are shocked and even uh, awed as we uh, think and contemplate you, very God of very God, the second person of the Trinity, humbling yourself in such a way before your disciples. And even doing more than that and going to die on the cross the following night for a people that despised and hated you. We thank you that you have called us to yourself and that we are now partakers of you uh, by virtue of our union with you. That by your spirit we've been united to you and that we now have your very life in us. And Lord, we pray that that would be the source of our strength and that in so doing we would love each other as you have loved us. We confess that apart from that there's no hope that we would be obedient in this way. There's no hope uh, that we would love each other as we should, that we would genuinely count others more significant than ourselves. But we take comfort, though, that it is your joy, your delight to bring this about in your people. We pray that you would uh, even further that now as we come to your table. Nourish us here, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.